Welcome to the Austin Art Talk Podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, and I'm a photographer, podcaster, and writer, and I love art and artists, and I love asking questions and having real conversations. I have a curious nature, and I'm really interested in people, who they are deep down and why they do what they do, what do they love, and how did they get where they are, and where are they headed? Austin is a great city, and I'm grateful to be in the midst of so many talented and amazing artists and those that support them. If you don't want to miss an episode, be sure to subscribe where you listen and visit scottdavidgordon.com to learn more about me, other podcasts I produce, and to read my almost daily journal where I share my photography, thoughts and connections, and books that I'm listening to or reading. And reach out if you have an idea for your own podcast and don't really want to deal with the learning curve and all the equipment. Maybe I can help you make your dream come true. This episode is brought to you by one of East Austin's newest fine art galleries, Ivester Contemporary. Now an important part of the Canopy Creative Complex. Ivester is focused on connecting the Austin community with a diverse group of Texas-based artists and connecting those artists with a broader audience beyond the Lone Star State. The gallery has two rotating exhibition spaces and compelling new shows every month. Owner Kevin Ivester believes the arts offer a space and opportunity to form a deeper relationship to ourselves, our local community, and with the world. Come down to the gallery and join the conversation. You can follow the gallery on Instagram at Ivester underscore contemporary, I-V-E-S-T-E-R, and visit IvesterContemporary.com to make an appointment to see the latest exhibition in person. Now for the interview. Sometimes it can take a lot to ask for help. Artist Brian Daly realized 19 months ago that even though he had already survived hitting bottom a few times before, this time might be his last. Through years of ups and downs, Brian acquired the skills to create almost anything as a fabricator, while also from a young age continuing to further his drafting and artistic talents. In this first part of two episodes, he shares in vivid detail, reminiscent of his drawings, the epic and sometimes tumultuous journey he has been on, up until getting clean and sober, and focusing his energy and recovery into his art. The paper and ink drawings he creates as a literal meditation are beautiful and precise in their rendering, allowing him to share a glimpse of his inner world, imagination, and lifelong fascination with tools and the mechanics of objects. The second part of our conversation, episode 98, goes into more detail about his current life and artistic practice. Here is Brian. All right, Brian, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, here we go. Yeah, I think we're both nervous. Because yeah. I feel like this is going to be like a real conversation. Oh, I mean, yeah. not that the ones that I have with other people aren't, but I think you're just, as you just said, you're kind of in an out of control and I think kind of a raw place, right? Yeah. And so it's I mean, all, raw it's all good. here. Raw is good. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely exposed. You know, I live in a glass house all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, it's I'm really the, cool. I'm the guy who used to paint his windows black you know or tinfoil or you know board them up and uh yeah oh. no transparency is cool yeah uh, um i'm getting more comfortable with it 
yeah, I mean, it's part of recovery. There's accountability or, you know, you need to be in the public eye. Um, and in Austin, mm. people, people know me. A lot of them know me for some things that maybe I'm not too proud of. Uh, sure. I definitely upset a lot of people. I've, I've always been fairly honest and kind of unfiltered, you know, even in my art. Like, yeah. uh, even, even the little pics I take and I post, they are not, there are no filters. Right. You know, that neon you saw on your phone is neon yeah. that I labored over and it looks blown out. It looks overexposed because it's been engineered to look that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm a great, cool, talented guy. I don't want to hide <laughs> any of it. You know, why would I want to hide any of it? I think engineered's a good description. Uh, you know, I've been following your work for a while and, I think my reaction and the reaction of people that I know is always like, his work is so cool. I mean, it's very, for someone that hasn't seen it, it's very um, line and shapes and curves and diagrammatic kind of um, explorations with ink and glowing. I mean, you're creating these glowing effects with ink and then you have your handwriting. It's, I mean, they're just really beautiful works. They're just really beautiful. Thank you for the compliment. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are. Um, yeah, they, they are. are. Uh, I work really, really, really hard. Um, I don't stress as much about it as I used to, but there is a tremendous amount of trial and error. I mean, for every, every drawing I do post, um, not even the ones for sale, but the ones that I actually post detailed shots of, there's 10 or 12 that have been cut into little tiny pieces and they're in a shoebox. Oh, wow. Okay. And nobody will ever see them. Um, I give them away when people buy a piece. I give them a handful of that confetti. Oh, wow. Those are all my secrets, all my failures, everything I attempted to draw that was just like, no way. Like, don't even waste mm. my time following this idea through just chop it up and move on do better next time um, but that's part of the process right that i think most yeah. artists realize is that there's a lot of a lot of work that you do that no one will see that's all required well i mean that's that's true in any trade yeah when somebody is at a professional level and i believe it as far as i'm concerned i'm thrilled with my results so far i've i've advanced exponentially especially in lockdown um but, you know, it's true with any trade because, you know, I'm a fabricator as well. I've worked in multiple disciplines. And anytime you're doing something for money, anything creative, especially when you are charging a fee, you're almost always discounted off the bat, you know, especially if you're really good at it and you, and you can do it quickly and efficiently, even more so. Your, mm -hmm. your, your skills are discounted because, like, people look at you and like, wow, you just made that look so easy. And I was like, right. well, it took 20 years of trial and error to to make it look that easy the overnight success <laughs> yeah it's weird you know and that's fine you know i used to get really angry and really frustrated and it kind of burnt me on wanting to you know mm. work for anybody ever again um but then you have to remind yourself like how how could they know they just hired me to do a thing because they yeah. saw that i did it before and you know we're not best friends we're not i'm not going over there for dinner i'm not going to hang out with their their partner and their kids and all that kind of stuff. So there's no time to explain to them all yeah. I went through. You know, I just have to stand my ground quietly and say, you know, you need to pay me five times more because that's what I'm worth. You know, and knowing your worth is a, is a touchy subject. Yeah, no, I know. That's really hard for, I don't want to say all artists, but a lot of artists, even myself. It's I mean, for, it's really hard to talk about that or to feel, I mean, I see people sometimes, you know, not seeing how good their work is and not sure. 
communicating that to people. I mean, how could you unless you in- intentionally, f- you know, I, I have to consult with other people, um, and not so much to get their opinion on my art, but on ways that I can view my art objectively. Hmm. And uh, I learned a trick in, in fabrication, in film work. Um, I was a fabricator here in Austin for, I guess, about five or six years in the film industry. And the first movie I was on, um, my first foreman, they taught me a trick. And it's funny because when you go into to film work, it doesn't matter what department you're in. You, you know, when you fill out your paperwork, it's about, it can be two to three hours of filling out the same thing. And over and over, you sign this thing saying that you will never take pictures of anything. Oh, wow. Never. No phones, no blahs. You know, some, some sets, they check your phones. Like, you just check them in and you can have them when you're done. And the first day on the job, you know, totally green. I just knew a guy. I met a guy. He got me into film work. And, uh, you know, I I did whatever tasks they asked me to do. You know, I glued some stuff to some stuff, which is most of film fabrication. Um, And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, take a bunch of pictures of it and text it to me. And I'm like, really? You know, is this guy trying to get me fired? (laughs) No, I mean, that's what I thought because it was really competitive. And I was like, no, like, that's how you, that's how you see how it reads. Um, and this trick, I use it a hundred times a day, if not more, even on a slow day with Mm. things I build when I'm moving furniture and decorating, whether I'm drawing, you take a picture of it and you look at the picture. Like when you take a picture of it, don't look at the thing, look at the picture. Interesting. And all of a sudden now it's not this thing you're holding in your hand. It's not. You're not connected to it. Um, and you can see right away, like even a crappy pick, real quick, as long as it's in focus, you take a picture, you're like, oh, that area is dead. I need to do a little bit more over here. Put it down. Make your changes. Take a picture of it. Don't look at the thing. Look at the picture of it. <laughs> and it'll tell you right away what you need to do. It'll tell you when you're done. It'll tell you when it's it's a total loss. Like wow. chop it up into bits, put it in the shoebox, start again. And this time, do this over here. Um, as far as layout and composition yeah. and, and, you know, balance and things like that. Um, if I want to see if that neon is glowing, I need a picture of it. I can't look at it. And I need a picture of it in five different types of light because who knows? Same as film. You know, how's, how's it going to read? Is it getting shot in daylight? Is yeah. It, um, and through that, I've been able to figure out that my pieces, especially the ones on black paper, they change colors. Oh my God, they change colors depending on the light. I could take a black and white drawing, just purely white ink on black paper. If I put it out here and we're minutes away from a thunderstorm, it turns purple in the photograph. Yeah. But in my mind, <laughs> looking at it, it's still bright white. Yeah. There's a disconnect when you, you this is the greatest tool, the phone, just for that reason. Yeah. That's the yeah. only reason I really need to have this, but you know, I could switch to like a regular camera. Um, yeah, I kind of went off on that. I no, know. I love that. Thanks for sharing um, that. It's a great trick. Yeah. Um, well, it just makes me wonder then how far do you want to go back? Where does this all start? Brian, the artist, Brian, the fabricator, Brian wants to build things and draw things and design things. I mean, birth. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Legos. I mean, come on. Oh yeah. I love Legos. <laughs> um, yeah. Legos right off, right off the bat. As soon as I could start drawing and I, I'm not really sure how it happened this way. I could ask my mom. I bet she would know. I mean, I remember being four and and drawing furniture in elevation. You know, like yeah, just cues. My dad had a uh, five foot high uh, Harman Kardon Nakamichi stereo stack cool. a tower, <laughs> a tower. You know, three thousand albums. The speakers were you know enormous, and it had all these little lights and things and equalizers and like 
and you know that thing was always on always you know sometimes till three or four in the morning you know my dad liked to party yeah. um but yeah we i grew up in front of that thing and just looking at that plan view i mean it was perfect and pristine and you know brushed stainless uh with black yeah. you know everything and yeah i remember drawing that stereo i still draw the things every now and then <laughs> i'm like it's that stereo and it, it you know little bits of metal i find on the street that look like faces it always goes back to that goddamn stereo wow um which he sold it's a tragedy that's bummer um yeah i would have killed the habit um but yeah uh always drawing furniture uh designing you know forts whatever but i from time i was four or five i was doing it at a level that you know high school kids something like that um growing up my mother always encouraged art i was gonna ask you yeah Yeah, you know so of course there's got to be balance my my father, you know, bless his heart, uh, still alive, but bless his, bless his heart. He was none too happy with the amount of time, especially as I got older, he became increasingly more frustrated with the amount of time I devoted to drawing. Hmm. Um, my mother, on the other hand, was always all for it. And then, you know, around the time, I guess I was in, I entered high school, you know, still drawing all the time and Legos all the time. Legos until I was, I mean, I still have sets. I've got a couple of them there right yeah, now I that do are new. Actually. <laughs> um, but around high school, my mother and my aunt, who are my pretty much my two best friends throughout life, uh, they were working as cartographers for a real estate, uh, commercial real estate company mm-hmm. uh, run by McGraw Hill. So they were drawing maps with rapidographs, yeah, and cutting ruby lith and ordering type, you know, because you had to call the place where they had this thing called a computer. <laughs> you call them. Yeah. You call right. them and you 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 spell out what you want and then they type it and print it and they send some kid on a bicycle to the shop and they hand it to you. And then you take that and you feed it through a wax machine and you cut out the street names and you place them on there. You know, all this stuff. So these tools and you know, I had exactos and rapidographs in fifth grade. You know, that's where I was at and I knew yeah. how to use them very accurately. And if you know, if I needed to do photocopies, you know, the only access to that was at like a public library. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, it's just shitty black and white copies. But if I needed nice copies, I could go to the McGraw Hill office, you know, and hang out and learn tricks and talk to all the women in the art department. It was all women. And uh, they were all amazing and all excited. And they like, you know, as, as a high schooler, they encouraged me. Uh, there was one woman, uh, Nat Hauser. She, she was big on me knowing my worth. You know, I was hand drawing ads for like crappy clubs, dive bars, venues mm-hmm. on the Jersey Shore. And like, she's like, no, you need to be charging, you know, $300 for that little oh, thing. Wow. I'm like, 300? I was like, I'm only I'm 15 years old. I equated age with yeah. money. And yeah. she's like, it's not about that. It's worth it. The work you're doing is quality work and you need to get paid for that quality. So yeah, I was always supported artistically, creatively, you know. As far as getting my hands on materials, learning how to use them, yeah, um, having the time to do it, and uh, my grandfather, he was an engineer and a fabricator. So oh, wow. if you, and he was, you know, on my mother's side. So if you take my grandfather and his two daughters, they, I can't help but think that they had an enormous role in shaping yeah. my style now and the way I look at things. Like I can make anything if I can draw it. I can understand anything if I can draw it. You know, mm-hmm. even even abstract ideas, if I can form them into shapes and colors and textures that make sense to me in an order that is visually pleasing, that I'm not totally ashamed of, 
all of a sudden, now I have a stronger connection to that idea or that machine or that building. And also, you know, as a selling tool, being a draftsman is pretty handy when you're a fabricator. The fabrication, you know, inspires the art and the art inspires the fabrication and it just keeps going. Was there anything else in high school that you did that kind of uh, fed into that or was that pretty? Um, I had the... Because uh, like in high school, I'd studied architecture sure and um, i so i loved all the drawing and snapping your lines and oh, the elevations yeah. i mean yeah. i love that i still do i i loved art and i loved drafting already you know i knew that i took you know of course getting to high school you know there's all this new stuff going on of course i took art of course i took uh introduction to drafting i failed both of those the first year and i was asked very politely never never to retake the drafting class and i was mm-hmm. one of the only students in there who was like really paying attention and i was doing it well, but I, I can't remember why I failed. Mm. But I, you know, it didn't affect me. There was still art, and then by the second year of, of art, same teacher. He was he was the kind of guy that would reach over and erase your line and tell you you were doing it wrong. So like, I immediately I vowed never to do anything he said. Eventually, he asked me to not take his class again. Oh wow! Um, I wasn't I wasn't a dangerous child. I wasn't a violent child. But I did get into fights a lot, and I did get suspended a lot just for being stubborn yeah um and eventually there was an older art teacher who taught an advanced class this guy named nick caivano um he was a short italian guy like, he's just awesome kind of guy who would you know punch you in the stomach if you messed with him yeah. like and he would you know and that was okay and he kind of let me he brought me in with the older kids and let me take those classes and just do whatever i wanted nice and uh i was extremely fortunate where I went to high school, we had a full service uh, production printing facility. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like we had two, two color AB Dick presses. We had all the darkroom equipment. We had the arc burning plate machine. We screen printing t-shirts, business cards, embossing a whole enormous photography wing. After the first year of photography, I was asked never to go back to photography. So I wasn't allowed to cross the hall. Um, And that was just a a conflict of personalities. Yeah. I didn't like the teacher who was really smarmy and I just, you know, whatever. You don't put up with anything. I just don't. (laughs) I just don't. I wasn't mean about it, but it was very clear. We agreed to disagree and just give each other the nod in the hallway. We didn't need to talk about anything else ever again. Um, and by my senior year, some things had gone down. Um, I ended up getting in a fight with like 20 kids. Oh, jeez. And uh, as circumstance would have it, they they were all African-American kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of flipped our high school and our town upside down. Wow. It was on the news a lot. It was in the paper every week. It was the NAACP was involved. And it was all over something completely benign and silly yeah. between me and a guy I knew and it it just escalated as things do and yeah. none of it was ever malicious really it was just a bunch of kids causing problems but that once that happened my life changed um mm. all of a sudden everybody knew who i was everybody knew who i was uh, yeah. you know i was getting i was getting torn apart on daily access tv i was getting Whoa. my name in the paper and people saying horrible things about me that just were not true because of that the, our school was uh was terrified they had had a i guess some kind of large racial incident you know this was a military town with lots of mixing cultures and ethnicities and they were terrified that i was going to sue them or something for not protecting me because there were some issues where i had like you know the cops had to show up and i had to be escorted out of the school um there was lots of 
other schools getting involved and people really wanting to fight. And I didn't want any part of it. Yeah. You know, it, it polarized my experience in high school. I didn't even know what racism was until I realized that once this went down, people in my, in, you know, in my circle, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, they had feelings of one, one kind or another, you know, and, uh, it freaked me out. Um, but the plus side of all that is, uh, I made a, a few friends that I'm still friends with today, loosely, and I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, I saw an angle. So I engineered, yeah. I dropped English, I dropped math, I dropped, I never took a foreign language. And I, my senior year, I switched to eight periods a day of graphic arts. Wow. I didn't take any other classes and they were just like, okay. I was like, I feel safer over here. And they're like, okay. I definitely milked the system. It was kind of a shitty thing to do. But an entire year of, you know, a formative year, my senior year, I spent all my time in graphic arts and mm. it was great. The smell of the Super 77, the smell of the glue, the smell of the ink, the smell of the chemicals, the Varsol, all of it. I was excited about graphic arts. Yeah. And I ended up getting, I ended up getting a partial scholarship, which I never considered going to college. I didn't think it was something that my family could afford. Yeah. Um, so I just never, I just put it out of my mind. And I eventually, I didn't even take the scholarship. I just kind of blew it, but it was for graphic arts. It was to go to Keene College, I think was the name of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was offered by this company called Print New Jersey. I don't even, I can't believe I remember all those details. Yeah. I never pursued it. Um, after high school, I stopped drawing. I got a job as a busboy at TGI Fridays. And I worked silly jobs for like four or five years until I kind of started getting back into it. You know? hmm. Why do you think you dropped out? Out of uh, um, graphics. My father and I had a falling out. Okay. You know, I was the metalhead with the long hair. He couldn't stand it. And, you know, we were constantly bickering. Um, I mean, what did he want? You said he wasn't supportive of you drawing. I'm like, not what sure did what he, he want you to do? I don't know. I think. Sports or something? He, I or? think he wanted me to cut my hair and have a nice young man haircut. And, yeah. I, and, you know, now I can understand, you know, you know, that was the time when the PMRC was a big deal, you know, and like explicit lyrics. Like, you know, they just started putting out albums and like explicit lyrics and parents were kind of up in yeah. arms. And I could see how a parent back then, you know, things were a lot more wholesome back then. You know, there were no cameras, there were no cops, you know. If you got caught driving after drinking, say I was 16 years old, getting pulled over with like, you know, a party ball in the backseat of somebody's Camaro that I'm driving with yeah. no license, and they're like, where do you live? I'm like, eh. like go home. I'm like, okay, go home. You know, it, yeah. it, things were simpler back then, and you know, heavy metal, you know, it was before rap, but heavy metal was, you know, a lot of parents had their eye on that, like, ooh, yeah, what's yeah, that? Yeah. Um, so you were ho you were at home still after high school while you were working so, these odd jobs. No, or? my my dad and I had a falling out uh, right after he uh, had found out he got a job offer in Houston, and the whole family was going to move. And I was excited to move. I wanted to you know check out Texas, and then it was clear over that summer like nope, you know last minute, never having had a job, never having experienced financial responsibility, none of it. Um, I found myself needing to get a place to to live and and be away from my family, like mm. just. You know, in the span of a week, it became clear, like, oh, I got to get a job. Wow. Like, so, yeah, you know, just whatever I could do to pay bills. And yeah. know, I was terrible at paying bills. So I'm only just now getting good at that. But So uh, you stayed in the I, Northeast? I stayed in the and Northeast and just, you know, worked crappy jobs, had fun, hung out with friends, drank a lot, you know, that kind of stuff. So what happened after four or five years of that? Um, that 
I got a job at Kinko's. Okay. And that was, you know, oh, that's exciting. You know, they they had good benefits. You know, of course, I was familiar with Kinko's. You know, just being in with, like, the the hardcore and punk crowds and all those kids. Oh, yeah. um, You know, because there was a great scene in my neighborhood. You know, there was a guy, a, a friend of mine. My buddy Josh, who had started a record label in high school, and it's still going. And, uh, you know, national acts would come to his house in our neighborhood, in our middle-class white neighborhood, yeah. and do raging shows in his basement. So there was always stickers and zines and all that. And uh, I got a job at Kinko's, and it was great. It was great. I worked the third shift. I learned all the machines. I started teaching myself computers, you know, because they had those design stations. Yeah. And I didn't have to pay for it because I was an employee. So, like, all night... Any night I wasn't working, I was there just like hammering Illustrator because it was ah, so cool. Like, yeah. I can just type and then I can like affect it. And, you know, there were all these silly little third party programs, but it was exciting and it, it uh, kept me engaged. And I did a couple of, you know, uh, cassette covers for, you know, tattoo parlor, whatever. And then one, I was also a delivery driver during the week for them. And then one day this company I delivered to came in or they called. And they offered me a job, and they 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 had a small mom and pop uh, museum and trade show exhibit fabrication company. Hmm. And I don't know why they wanted. I think they just liked me because I was very personable when I went there. I was not. I had no building skills at all. I wasn't allowed to take shop classes as a kid. I really wanted to. You know, I wanted small engines. I wanted to learn how to. I saw people welding in high school. And I'm like, whoa, what is that magic? You know. And my yeah. grandfather was a welder, so I was like, yeah, maybe my mom would be cool with it. Um, for whatever reason, I never got to. And uh, they hired me as their warehouse guy. Mm. And, you know, they were paying a little bit more. I think I was making 10 bucks an hour. So I was like, all right, I'm out of here. You got in there. Yeah. I got in there, and uh, maybe the end of the first week, they explained to me that they were about to get really busy because uh, this thing called Toy Fair was happening. Mm. Uh, it was a big convention at the Jacob Javits Center. And they're like, you know, you're going to need to work a lot of overtime. And, you know. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. You know, I wasn't really sure what overtime was. You know, I was still young. And uh, overnight, we went to, uh, I think the first week, I worked 123 hours. Whoa. Like, we didn't sleep. Um, you took naps in the van. And they had me mixing paint, like, you know, this whole enormous paint system, like hand-mixing PMS colors by eye. And I was like... This is insane, and the fumes, and there's forklifts going, and now I'm building cabinets, and they're teaching me how to laminate, and, you know, just doing Formica, like, I'm, I'm like, this is so awesome. Like, you can wow. order this material, and you can stick it down, and it comes with all these textures, and long story short, within a year, digital printing became a thing that, you know, different small companies were getting into, and it was expensive and haphazard and crazy, and uh, I started doing, we got an oversized digital printer, 48 inches wide, you could do... 20 feet long, however long the rolls were. And the rolls were so sensitive. Oh, people don't know how good they have it now. Like, if you if you bent the paper, the coating would flake and chip off. Like, this, there were all these different systems and chemicals and adhesives and all these things you had to do. And it was horribly frustrating. And, uh, like I said, within a year of starting to drive the forklift there, I took over the art department. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, That's cool. I guess I was... In retrospect, I was cheaper than the guy who had started it, and he was stubborn, and I was stubborn, but, you know, whatever. I learned quickly, and I stayed late. I've always, um, this is a recurring thing, when I get into something, I will sacrifice every personal relationship I have, especially with fabrication and art. I still do it. Um, But I never went home. You know, I just stayed there. Um, 
I bought I bought the G3 when it came out. I built myself a giant black Formica desk that was like a giant capital C and all these curved angles and because I'd mastered Formica, I had mastered cabinetry, yeah. I had, you know, carpentry, all this stuff. I had sunken in monitors. I had five computers at my desk. <laughs> I went from like forklift to that. Wow. And it was stressful. You know, this was back in the day with zip disks. Yeah. And they were like they were they were like fifty dollars a piece. And I'm explaining to my boss that now that we're doing digital imagery oversize, I need I need twenty zip disks tonight. Oh jeez. He's, like, he's like, Well can't you just print it in piece? I'm like, it doesn't work this way. Like, you know and your computer's crashing. Now I'm learning how to rebuild computers because, you know, there was no place to take a Mac wow. to, you know, do this thing. I paid seven thousand dollars for that computer, brand new. Um Yeah. And then I had a nervous breakdown. Oh. Like, full on. Wow. Um, I just woke up one morning and realized I couldn't never go back to that, that place. You know, the, mm. the chemicals, the hours, the habits of my coworkers. Bless their hearts. I love them all. But, you know, tons of drugs. And I was not into drugs at all. Not yet. And it was stressful. I mean, it's, it's intense work. Yeah. Um, I got to do amazing things, you know. Uh, in my time there, I mean... We designed, built, and installed the permanent uh, exhibit to George and Ira Gershwin room at the Library of Congress. Wow. Um, I was the sole contact. I did all the typesetting, the proofing, fabrication, screen printing, delivery, and installation for the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Battery Park. Mm. Me, the forklift driver. Wow. Like, <laughs> that was me. That's um, impressive. You know, Newark Art Museum, Montclair Art Museum, like I loved being around sacred things. Yeah. Um, and I got to I got to do things that to this day, I mean, these are goosebumps. My entire arm, like I got to hold a piece of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh wow! Because nobody else wanted to mount it, and I was the guy who made the box and delivered it. You know, like I got to experience things. I, you know, I touched George Gershwin's piano, and you know, immediately got called out on the camera security thing, intercom. You know, if yeah. the library police are like, Brian, stop. I'm like, all right. But the excitement of that type of work, um, I remember we had a glass panel. It was uh, just over four feet wide, and it was over eight feet tall. It was three-quarter inch thick tempered glass, and we had paid a local glass sculptor to sandblast carve a relief of the Gershwin brothers in it. And then I had to, in four or five colors screen print all the copy around that image floor to ceiling right wow. so we we finished the first one and as we we're moving it it exploded in the shop you know so now we're making a second one it was like five grand a pop cost and then we had to drive this thing down to dc in a rented oh, van geez. which was stressful then we installed it and that was stressful enough you know three guys lifting this thing in the middle of the night and like you know because it all had to be done at night and then we had a call saying the family wanted to change uh two of the lines of text oh, in there no so I drive back to Jersey from D.C. My boss made the screen, grabbed the screen, go back down. We had to take this thing out. I had to lay it down on the floor of the Hamilton building in the hallway of the Library of Congress. And I had to get a thing of mineral spirits and some rags and cut them out to the size of the sentences and lay them on there and pray, just pray it didn't leach and take off anything other than those two sentences. And then I had to screen print this. Wow. On my hands and knees at four in the morning, like, and the whole time, like, there's this desperation, like, you're just looking for somebody to help you, and yeah. you're the guy, you're the professional. Wow. Like, you, the forklift driver. Yeah. 
never, you know. I can see why you had a nervous breakdown. I mean, what does that mean? What's a nervous breakdown? Um, I mean, I call it that because that's easy. Um, yeah. Something just happened. I started hallucinating. Um, hmm. You know, I, I call that at work. I, I don't remember what excuse I, I gave. And then I call that again. And I call that again. And they're like, what's going on? You know, and they were actually concerned. I was like, I, I don't know. Um, I started seeing things that I always wanted to see. I just never thought I wouldn't, I, I would reach a point where I couldn't turn them off. Like, I remember the first day I was, I was in the car. I was at the light. This is in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. And I'm staring at the red light. And I saw a truck go by and I could see the inside of the tire. I could see the belts in the tire. I could mm. see the brakes behind it. I could see the axle. I could see the uh, differential yeah. through yeah. it. And I was like, Whoa. that's weird. And I wasn't doing drugs, you know. I was sober. And, uh, so I, and then another car went by and I could see the engine. Like, I could see it. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then the light turned green and I went. And then halfway through the light, I looked up and it was red. And I was like, you know, cars flying. And I'm like, oh, jeez. Like, so something happened in my yeah, head yeah yeah and it was terrifying um, yeah absolutely i had good insurance you know i started going whatever and uh you know those in, that imagery wouldn't stop and uh I, I eventually just told them i was like i can't come back i need some time off yeah and you know i think they kind of we bickered back and forth about that and maybe you're gonna lose your job i'm like i, I don't have a choice right i don't care right um, and things just got worse from there um you know, it was my first time going to a, psych a psychiatrist and trying yeah. different medications for depression, for OCD, you know, because I was now this detail guy. Like, it was all about details and structure and plans and, like... Just wound up yeah. so tight. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't making art all this time that I was working at this job because I was so busy. Um, hmm. And uh, I started these, these various medications at high dosages, and they just kept adding different medications and, like... My weight was dropping. Um, I wasn't sleeping for days now. So it's like, oh, you're not sleeping. Here's tranquilizers. I'm like, okay, I take those. And it got to the point where I couldn't drive anymore because I was sure that every car coming towards me was veering at yeah, me. Yeah. It got really bad and really dark really fast. And uh, this went on for months. I eventually barricaded myself in the basement of this three-story Victorian. I took over the basement. I locked my, my living girlfriend out. There were mm -hmm. locks on the inside of the basement door. Yeah. Motion detector lights, um, chemicals. I was living on red wine and cookies. That's it. I, yeah. I don't think I ate anything for probably three or four months other than that. Just extreme paranoia. You're extreme about. paranoia. Um, you know, I, I, I took my computer, you know, from work and I built a airtight room with this queen and framing to keep, you know, all the dust from from yeah. any, a basement in the Jersey Shore, like all the bullshit that could happen there. And uh, I started collecting unemployment. And I just, I went whole hog nuts. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't talking to anybody anymore. I was hallucinating visually, uh, auditory hallucinations. And then my grandfather started hanging out with me in the basement. And he'd been dead oh. three or four years. Wow. And he was like, I guess he was like kind of teaching me to build things. I was just thinking about that this morning. Um, I went and then I went to Home Depot and I bought a, a little drill press and a little circular saw and sandpaper and drill bits, all with my unemployment money, you know. Mm -hmm. And I started making bird cages in my basement. Hmm. And then I started stripping all the handles off my tools and redipping them to custom dyed colors. And I just, I just went full nerd psycho in the basement for months. 
Um, I wouldn't even go out to pee. I would just pee in wine bottles, open thing, and roll them to the curb on recycling day. Like, I was a mess. I started wow. carving out bricks of the foundation to make a little room for myself, which is insanely dangerous for a three-story yeah, yeah, yeah. old building. Um, I was making very poor choices across the board. And then... Uh, How did you get out of that? Eventually, <clears throat> I hooked up with this guy named Jerome Simon, who I, I, I recently called he doesn't remember me but he changed my oh, life wow. he was okay. a he was a therapist and you know he was in my uh in my list of people that were covered by my yeah, insurance yeah. and uh just a wonderful smart caring man and you know he was able to talk me through this you know through all the issues i was having with that eventually i checked myself into um a mental health facility mm-hmm. you know i called my mom uh who was living down in in sugarland and i was like i need help i need you to come up and yeah, you know, I remember the day walking in there in tears. I was so ashamed that I had to mm. go, you know, because there was this serious stigma. I imagine there still is about going to, yeah, you know, a mental hospital. And yeah, I yeah. checked myself in because I was a danger to myself. Mm. Um, you know, whether through almost accidentally overdosing several times, self-medicating, mixing alcohol with the drugs, and I had this nasty, beautiful habit of every night I would walk down to the fishing pier in Ocean Grove. In the winter, you know, cold is awful. It's right on the ocean. Yeah. And I would hop the fence and I would go to the end and I'd get on the other side of the fence and I would just kind of hang out, just like wanting to do it. I never could, but I knew it was only a matter of time. Uh, Sooner or later, I would slip, you know, even if I didn't intentionally jump and that would be the end of that. So, yeah, I went to the, to the, uh, I went to Monmouth Medical. They had a, a psychiatric ward there. I didn't I didn't know how all that worked and what they ended up doing was radically adjusting my medication and treating me for OCD instead of depression. Mm-hmm. And the gist of what they were saying was I became so focused on being depressed. I was I was OCD about it like I was yeah. I was it's where all the notes started. So all those little notes, notes you see oh yeah. okay so all those notes <laughs> that you see in my art all those yeah. little things that started with that um mm. I knew I was in trouble. I didn't know how to ask for help. And I realized I, I wanted my family and my friends to know. Because, I mean, at a point, I was down to, I think it was around 85 pounds. Mm. I still have a picture of it somewhere, and it's terrifying to look at me. Yeah. Um, I knew sooner or later I was going to die at my own hands. And honestly, I thought it was going to be just through some simple mistake, because I was clearly not capable. Yeah. Of, of not hurting my, it was, it was going to happen sooner or later, whether it was a medication or slipping off the pier or, you know, drinking too much or starving to death. It could have happened, yeah. you know. And I wanted every night, whenever I would take medication or drink or have a thought, I would just write a little note. Um, this is the time. This is the date. This is the dosage I took. This is what I've had to eat today. This is what, I, how much I drank today. Yeah. Just so that if something happened, there might be some peace. Yeah. Like, yeah. My family could say, oh, okay, well, it was an accident. You know, I never wrote a suicide note. I didn't want to kill myself, but I felt like I might accidentally, you yeah. know. Um, so that's, that's where taking detailed notes, those little tiny notes, uh, that's where that started. And then when I got out of there, I was in there for a week, and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I was, I was staying in a room with a guy who murdered his wife and robbed a bank. You know, sweet Jeez. old man, but it was like, you know, there were people threatening to beat me to death because they wanted my sweater and this I, I was in a ward with people who were unbalanced I had just kind of lost my way yeah and 
So that's some context, some perspective. <laughs> got, you know, by, by the end of the first week, I was like, I was leading music class. I'm walking down the hall, Frank Sinatra snapping my fingers. Like, I'm ready to go. Let's go. I'm out, you know, and I got yeah. out uh, probably like six or eight days or something like that. And I started drawing again. I was given mm. a, a sketchbook for Christmas, a, a Bane Fang, I think is how you say it, just a white paper spiral. I still have it. Um, the bulk of everything I draw is based off, I did about 20 simple architectural perspective, just thin black line drawings. I did 20 of those in like one day, and they are still the greatest things I've ever drawn. I have wow. a couple on my door in there. I'll never sell them, and they are images there are shapes that I revisit and think of every time I draw. Hmm. Something finally, like the log jam broke. And I, I, you know, everything I'm doing, mind you, I'm living with a young woman who is like melting down watching me do all this. I, I emptied out the pantry. I threw all the food on the kitchen floor. I built some shelving. I put in a little, I built a little drafting table in a pantry the size of a small, small shower. I installed lighting. And I put a deadbolt on the inside, and I stayed in that pantry for like a week and filled that entire book. Wow. And that book, um, after that, I was like, I need to break up with this girl. I need to move out of here, and I need to be outside. And uh, I went and I got a job digging ditches for a swimming pool builder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was it. That was That was my first, holy shit, I almost died, and this is how I'm going to get better. So I started working with my hands. I was outdoors every day. We worked 300... Well, we worked Monday through Friday, all year round. Yeah. Outside on the coast, winter, rain, snow, didn't matter. And I started learning. Um, mm. You know, I went from digging ditches to being the tile guy to being the cement guy to being, we started doing additions and pavers and roofing. And like, I now, now know underwater sound and light and gas appliance repair, um, you know, excavation. We bent all the steel rod by hand, all that rebar, skinny little me. Yeah. Um, working with these these heavies from El Salvador yeah. <laughs> and Costa Rica and Puerto Rico and you know Portuguese all all that I'd say as a young adult it was the best time of my life I had a giant truck giant old Chevy four speed dually utility body 20 feet long with a rack with like three tons of steel on it and I'm like I'm you know I'm getting kicked out of Bon Jovi's yard for making fun of this music you know <laughs> built a, a custom spa for James uh, Gandolfini you know yeah met with Mr T downtown he was an electrician on 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 the coast and I was working in all these mansions in Deal and Rumson New Jersey yeah uh, the richest county in New Jersey Monmouth County all the beach clubs everybody knew me everybody in my truck I was the guy I'm the guy you need to move something I'm the guy your plumbing isn't working I'm the guy I'll fix it for you you need you need a a room built, I can build it. Like, I had all the tools. Wow. And uh, I loved it. I weighed more than I ever did. I was like 145 pounds of lean muscle. It was the most I've ever weighed in my life. And I was tan. I was outside all day. I was seasoned. Uh, I was living on Portuguese food, same restaurant. I went every day, mostly because I didn't speak Portuguese and they didn't speak English. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I would just point and I would just sit there and drink espressos and red wine, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner working the whole time doing great and then one day uh i got a promotion um you know I, I went as the labor to now i have my own crew and i have my own truck and my boss basically called me to his house and he handed me an envelope he said go down to the dodge dealership he's like uh pick which color you want write it on the envelope and throw this envelope in in the key drop you know and it was cash to pay for the the, the work truck he was wow. gonna get me my own truck 
And uh, I also got a raise, you know, I had health insurance, I had all this great stuff going for me. And my alarm went off one day and I went to turn it off and I couldn't move. Um, I had severed my lowest disc. Jeez. I guess the the day before or something. Wow. Um, I believe it was, uh, I was, we were running three inch PVC, 20 foot length. I was by myself. And when you glue PVC, you put the primer on, you put the glue on, you compress it and it wants to push back. Yeah. So now imagine a three inch pipe. Quarter inch thick, 20 feet long. There's a lot of weight. And I'm in this ditch doing this thing. So anyway, the next day I couldn't move, you know. Um, I had to call my landlord over who was in his seventies and, you know, he had to help me. And, uh, I just, I told my boss, I'm like, I I can't, I can't move. I'm blinding pain, you know. So I went to the doctor, great insurance, whatever, have a bunch of pills. And you can stop me. I don't know what the question was originally. No, I'm loving this. Um, I'm so grateful for everything you're sharing. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I guess I should take that as a compliment, right? Um, <laughs> no, so then started, uh, you know, that started painkillers, which I had gotten uh, used to. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, something kind of I glossed over is I've had dental issues my entire life. Yeah. Um, I got struck by lightning on July 5th, 1990. <clears throat> I was 17. And, uh, about two months later, you know, I had perfect teeth. About two months later, there was a little hole in my tooth. You know, six months later, there was a hole in another one. You know, just out of nowhere, it, it started to degrade my teeth. Um, but you survived that. Is that common oh, yeah. to survive getting hit by lightning? Uh, I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've, read, was, I've read a little bit about it. Um, what was that like? It was terrifying. It was cool at first. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize the mental end of it. Uh, our house had gotten hit four times that day, and I was worried, you know, the power was out. I was worried about the ice cream sandwiches melting. Yeah. You know, you know I remember my mom calling. She was at the McGraw Hill thing. She's like, are you okay? I was like, hey, I want to get off the phone. You know, the house got hit by lightning. I want to get off the phone. You know, got off the phone. House got hit again. You know, house got hit again. Wow. So finally, I went down to the basement, <clears throat> you know, through a door, down some stairs, through another door, around the corner, down the stairs, all the way across the basement with a candle in my hand because it was pitch black and I remember I put it on the shelf for the fuse box and I grabbed the fuse box door and I heard this pop and all of a sudden I just looked around and I could see everything. I could see sawdust on the workbench. I could see the screws. I could see this Kramer Guitar Factory was there. I had all these cut up guitars I had been working on for my metalhead friends and it was all slow motion I'm looking around I'm like why can I see everything? And wow. Like, it felt like minutes, and I heard this bang above me. I found out later that was my older sister, Jess. That was her jumping off the couch when the house got hit by lightning. Yeah. And, you know, I heard this pop, you know, when the light started. And then I heard another pop, and everything was black. Like, you know when you get that little shock? That little, yeah. That pop was the lightning coming into me, and then the second pop was it came out of my mouth. Oh, jeez. Which is cool because they can x-ray you and, and, and see where the electricity really? went. Yeah. It like carbonizes your bones. So like if they x-ray your whole body, they can tell you where it went and where it came out oh, and all that geez. stuff. Yeah, it was weird. You know, I was pretty freaked out for a good week, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, next day outlets are exploding in the house and I'm jumping and I'm jittering and whatever. So you never like went to the hospital No, or no. Something. So, yeah, you know, I get the, the lightning comes out of my mouth, makes this pop. And I don't remember it, but apparently I grabbed the candle and I ran through the pitch black basement, up the stairs, around the corner, through a door, up another flight of stairs. And I opened the door and my sister is standing there in tears and she's just looking at me. 
And she's like, you just got struck by lightning. And I was like, uh, I remember I went to scream and it came out like this dark, deep moan. I guess my vocal cords were all constricted. Yeah. And uh, she's like, we're going to the hospital. I'm like, holy shit, I just got struck by lightning. This is so cool. And I remember, I, I remember specifically, I ran upstairs. She's like, where are you going? I was like, I got to get my Ride the Lightning shirt, you know, my Metallica shirt. Put, put that on. I was like, yes. <laughs> and I ran to the bathroom, and I'm like, looking for the streak in my hair, and there's yeah, nothing. Yeah. And I'm like, like, look at my hands. My sister's like, get in the fucking car. And, you know, I'm looking around, and I was like, I got nothing. Nothing, you know? So we go to the hospital, and they x-ray you, and they do all this stuff, and uh, no hospital knows how to treat it. Yeah. I think to this day, they still don't. Right. I've, I've read a few books that go into great detail, all the very important things that need to be done. And nobody, as far as I know, it's not common knowledge. And that was it. You know, I left. Um, so each time you get struck by lightning, they say you're like 50 to 70% thirstier for the rest of your life. Oh. I don't know where I read that. I don't know if I made it up. But every time you take that much electricity, your body maintains a little bit more charge than the average person. We, oh, interesting. So everything on Earth, everything on the planet, every person, we all have a negative charge. It's called a leader and that's why they say lightning starts at the ground. So that leader comes up out of my head. It comes up out of your head. Yeah. When the air is charged and in the right conditions, it comes up out of the top of the cactus, I guess, is the only photograph of an actual leader in history. My leader is stronger than your leader. So if you and I are sitting here and storm's starting, if lightning's going to strike around here, it's going to hit me, not you. Mm. And then I'm going to have more of a charge. So now my leader's even stronger. So that's why when you meet those people who get yeah, struck once right, and then they right. get struck twice, they're probably going to get struck a third time if they keep going outside yeah. the rest of their lives. Yeah. So yeah, I'm thirstier for the rest of my life and it totally screwed up my teeth. Yeah. Um, which led down, you know, that got, that was my introduction to painkillers. Yeah. So you hurt your back. So I hurt my back. Wow. I brought killers. it, I brought it around full circle. Nice. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, I had great insurance. I was young and I was very naive and they said, okay, just take all these Percocets and, go back to work they cleared me to go back to work and i was like you know I, I dig ditches and i crawl and i bend and you know wheelbarrows full of concrete and like pickaxes and you know like yeah just you know take it easy i'm like okay so they they knew physically what was wrong with oh yeah back? i went for the mris and then went for the x-rays and what i had i had a bulged disc okay okay yeah and it was pinching a nerve and they're like just take these pills take these anti-inflammatories yeah. take all this and then i went back to the chart in fact, my, my good friend Kirsten has this. Uh, she is somebody I've given art I've wanted to destroy that I knew I shouldn't. And it was a detailed chart. All right. There was a legend for, you know, the Percocet or the Vicodin. Oh, wow. Because eventually I had to start switching to maintain liver, kidney health. Jeez. And, uh, you know, the dates, the times, the dosage, how I took it, why I took it. And uh, so about a month of that, you know, I'm still driving this giant enormous truck full of full of my crew and covered in all kinds of tools and heavy dangerous stuff all around jersey shore i'm still building i'm still working i'm feeling great and i'm high as kite still drinking you know and i got to about like 15 18 20 pills a day whoa and they were still giving them to me and then you know after about 20 a day you know it's like every other day i'm calling them like i need more and they're like we can't give you any more dude like you know come in you gotta come in for a visit so i go in for a visit Oh, no, no, no. So one day I'm at the shop, and I'm by myself, and it's this dead-end street in Seabright, New Jersey, and I back the truck in, and I'm unloading, and the sun's just about to go down, 
and nobody's going to find me in this little industrial area. And I throw my leg over the tailgate, totally shit my pants. And this blinding pain, that was it, and I was stuck. So I got one foot on the ground, I got one over the tailgate of this this Dodge truck. Yeah. I'm covered in shit, and, you know, my phone's in the cab. That's it. Can't move. And uh, luckily this one dude who was moonlighting, and he was known to help himself to some of the company materials, you know. Mm -hmm. He comes by and and, uh, with his girlfriend, and he's going to grab something, he finds me, you know, and, and... we figure out how to get me, you know, home and cleaned up and whatever. So the next day I go into the doctor and I'm like, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay, well, just hang out for a second. And never in my life have I heard of this happening. It's never happened to me again. I'm in the exam room and these two dudes in suits come in. In the exam room, I'm in a thing. Like, yeah. I got clipboards and they hand me this thing and I got to read it and sign it and initial here. And they, I started beta testing Oxycontin. Whoa. Yeah. And I'd heard about it. You know, on the news, like on, on nightly news or whatever, this new wonder drug or whatever, and, and that's you know what I did. And uh, still, no surgery, just more pain. No, relief. no surgery, no mention of it, just pain management, as they call it. That's pain management, very yeah. soft term. And uh, yeah, it, it wasn't wasn't two or three days before I crushed one and snorted it mm. just to see. Yeah, and man. Blood pressure dropped. Just I gotta lay right here. Whatever I'm doing, and and that was it. You know, I was still in pain. I couldn't work anymore. Uh, my boss let me hang onto the truck for the a couple more months because he knew I needed it to get to physical therapy and yeah, all the stuff. Very generous guy. Um, I don't think he's still with us. And uh, yeah, I did some epidurals, physical therapy. I couldn't get unemployment because my injury didn't technically happen. It wasn't documented. Right. It was happening at work. And I couldn't get workers' comp because um, basically I never got any compensation. So right. I got some credit cards. And, you know, physical therapy three times a week, that's $90 worth of copays. Every time I needed a refill pers- for a prescription, I had to have a doctor's visit, another $30 copay, plus the cost of the medication. And it wasn't very long before I was, like, racking up some serious debt, and I was still in, in horrible pain, you know, doing mm-hmm. the epidurals and all that. And I hit my third epidural in, like two and a half months and they're like that's it we can't you can only have three a year so like wow. now they're like surgery and i was like fuck that got hooked on oxycontin it was dark um and it was awesome uh hmm. what a drug what a horrible amazing high yeah it's, it's the best high i've ever had and it got to a point where you know i was really concerned and i'd only you know maybe a couple months of it I just, I couldn't, I knew I was going to die again. Oh, here I am again. Like, you know, again with the notes. Yeah. Like, just in case, this is what I took, you know, and I kept a very beautiful log of it. It's framed currently in in, in Kirsten's house. And, um, you know, I went to the emergency room. You know, I remember going out, uh, I lived behind a very popular bar and all, all my friends hung out there, everybody did. And I remember walking up to the porch one day, I was like, I need a ride to the emergency room. Like, what's wrong? I was like, I'm hooked on, on Oxycontin. And they're like, oh, you know, just kind of have a drink, everything. Nobody really took it seriously. Yeah, and yeah. In retrospect, sure, I didn't explain it all, but I knew I needed help. So I walked to the emergency room and I told them I needed help getting off of Oxycontin and they, they're like, uh, what are they saying? They're like, oh, Oxycodone? I'm like, no, ox, Oxycontin. Uh, I need help. And they're like, what? We don't have anything for that. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I called wow. my doctor. I'm like, I need help. I can't sleep. 
I can't eat. And they're like, oh, we can give you some tranquilizer. I was like, I don't want more. I want less. And, uh, you know, back and forth for like a week or so, I felt trapped because um, mm-hmm. I was in pain. I'm still taking, I still need them. I mean, I was in a lot of pain because, you know, when I had thrown my leg over that tailgate, that's when I cut my disc in half. Oh. So now it's two pieces. They don't go back together. They don't heal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And eventually I got off all that and I think I called my dad and he rented me a giant rider truck and I loaded all my stuff and I moved to Austin. Wow. Um, yeah. I started a new life here. I stayed with my sister when I landed. Uh, and so you were... I'm off the drugs, still in pain. Okay. But I came here. I started... The first night I was here, I drank a glass of water. Um, I hadn't had a glass of water as an adult, ever. Oh, interesting. I remember, you know, my sister was living uh, up near the old airport and showed up at her house and we partied all night and, uh, you know, I was moving slow and I went to lay down on the couch and she gave me, she put this mason jar full of water. I'm like, what's that? She's like, water. I'm like, what do we do with that? She's like, you drink it. I was like, what? You know, she kind of coached me into eating better and stuff like that. I started riding a bicycle. I hadn't ridden a bicycle since I was a child. Yeah. And I just started being a lot kinder to myself and gentler to myself and actually eating real food and drinking water and exercising and going slow for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And I started to feel better. I wasn't in pain anymore. I, you know, I never took painkillers after I left Jersey. Yeah. Um, not for my back. I took them recreationally, you know, after some time had passed and I, you know, I felt safe doing it. Yeah. So after, after that, uh, injury, my life started in Austin Mm. and, uh, yeah, I really didn't stay in touch with anybody from, from Jersey except for one person really. Well, my family and, uh, how old were you when you moved here? That's where it gets gray, you know? Um, this is like 20, 25 years ago you're saying or no, I want to keep saying it's 20 years ago. Um, I don't know what year it was. I don't know what year I broke my back. I don't know what year yeah. I lost my mind. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe it was 18 years ago. I don't know. Okay. I guess if I stopped and did the math and maybe called a couple people and say, hey, when did this happen? I could maybe piece together the timeline, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. Um, I got here. And, you know, even my first night here, I was introduced to probably 30 people who I still maybe see 15 of them on a semi-regular basis some of the greatest most creative talented caring sharing people austin was different um and it was noticeably different and it was something i wanted to be a part of yeah so yeah i moved down here and everything kind of took off really quick and and, in a lot of positive ways living up in the northeast is not a friendly environment it's just not um people don't share information they don't share ideas yeah i mean they just don't if yeah. anything, they'll take them from you. Um, I couldn't get anybody to teach me anything I wanted to learn up there just by asking people who knew how to do it. I'm like, can you teach me that? And they're like, no, you can go to school and learn it. I'm like, listen, I just need a little bit of time, you know. And what I found when as soon as I moved to Austin is people will share whatever they have with you, yeah. whether it's an idea or a process or food or housing, um, at least when I, at the time I moved here. And it just opened up my entire mm. world, anything I ever wanted to do. Like, I always thought maybe the only way I would ever get to learn how to weld was maybe if I retire. I don't even know what that word means anymore. (laughs) But, you know, I would retire and maybe buy a welder, um, you know, 
my best friend, this guy Logan, you know, I met him when I first moved down here at this coffee shop on the drag I was working at. I remember he came up to me, he's like, you're that guy who could draw, right? I'm just like, yeah, you know, he's got all kinds of piercings, tattoos, Lord of the Rings. I'm like, who is this? You know, because we didn't have graffiti in Jersey. We didn't have people like just being themselves creatively. Yeah. Wow. And I remember him saying, he's like, well, I'm a blacksmith. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's crazy. He thinks he's a blacksmith. (laughs) Because I thought blacksmiths and midwives were something that happens at Renaissance. uh, Yeah, right, right. And I ended up drawing this thing for him because he needed help. And then, you know, two weeks later, he comes back with a picture on his flip phone and he built it. I'm like, my mind was blown. I was like, wait, there's people, there's a blacksmith in Austin. And now that's hilarious to say out loud because there's actually hundreds of them. Yeah, Um, Yeah. You know, I was introduced to blacksmiths and welders and midwives, you know, like my wife at the time and I, we birthed both our kids at home. Nice. Like it was the ultimate do it yourself project. I started to just put faith in the people around me when they said, I want to do this thing. When, when, when we got pregnant and my now ex-wife said, you know, well, midwife, home birth. I, I just, I didn't even question it. And I'm sure yeah. my family was a little put off, but that's how everything is down here. Down here, you can do whatever you want. And if you say it audibly, in public, mm-hmm. oh, I need a place to stay. I need to learn how to weld. I want to be a blacksmith. I want to work in film. If you say it just loud enough, enough times, yeah, somebody, a total stranger, is going to come up and be like, "Hey, I heard what you just said." Um, <laughs> you know, I'm so and so. Like, you, yeah, I heard you want to like learn how to weld. Do you want to do that right now? I'm like, you know, it's two uh, thirty yeah. in the morning. We're downtown. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like, well, let's go to my shop and you know, strike a beat. And that's it's like so that's cool. it. And yeah. then you know, if you follow that, you know. With that attitude, you know, I started working at Jerry's Artorama, the little art store that had just opened. Yeah. I was living on the east side, commuting on my 20-inch bicycle, you know, up Red River every day and back. And then you start meeting all these other artists, you know. So I learned how to do museum-quality picture framing. I was taught by my my guy I went to high school with, who I got to move down here, my lifelong friend, Dion, who still works there. So I learned picture framing, which as an artist means now I can afford to frame my art because you can't afford to frame it otherwise you know when you're first starting out framing is expensive yeah, yeah, yeah. now that I got framing under my belt now it's like I want to learn stained glass so I found the company in town that did it the best and I went over there and explained to them that I'm going to work for you guys now I'm going to quit <laughs> over here and he, no you're not you know Rodney the owner and he's like no we're not hiring I'm like that's okay I'll come back tomorrow he's like well you really ought to not come back tomorrow and then you go back tomorrow and be like just be in my truck and be like hey you know how you doing? I'm still here, you know. And then eventually, I got hired to the glass place. Um, and, you know, I got hired just doing stock and learning how to cut glass. And uh, some wonderful people there, amazingly talented. And then by the end of that year, I was running the whole front of the store. You know, I took over the retail side. Yeah. Um, I learned all the architectural side of glass, like ordering glazing from different manufacturers in Houston and Dallas. Yeah. Um, so not only was I learning the art of leaded glass repair and restoration and new construction. I was learning commercial glazing and all the fittings and all the adhesives and all the gaskets and mm. all the extrusions that went along with it and how to order them and how to get around building codes. You know, then I'm, I'm building houses on the East side, you know, I'm working with just local builders and we're like taking on enormous gigs and everything is possible, you know? And then after a little while I met a guy in a bar and we had a conversation about a finish because he built the bar and this, you know, fondling the welds and I'm looking at the thing. How'd you do this? And he's like, hey, he's like, you know, you want to, how would you feel 
you know, he said he could meet me for a beer. So, you know, 10 beers later, you know, the place is closed and he's like, how would you feel about getting paid a bunch of money to make other people's art for them? Hmm. And I'm like, it sounds great. He's like, how soon can you quit your job? I was like, I can call my buddy right now. Like right now, 2 a.m., I can call him and say, I'm never coming back. He's like, just hang out, you know, hold on. <laughs> so a couple of weeks went by and I get a call. You know, I'm, I'm working at Jerry's and I get a call and the guy's like, go to this, this place tomorrow morning, this dress, and ask to speak to Marcy. You know, I'm like, who is this? He's like, oh, it's Jeff. We met in the bar and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm like, what, what is this about? And he's like, he's like, go to Troublemaker Studios tomorrow. It's Robert Rodriguez's right. uh, studios. And I went in and uh, I, I didn't even know why I was there. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. And I, I, it's like, you know, it's like 6.30 in the morning, 7 in the morning. This lady, Marcy, she walks me into the shop and she opens these doors and it's the old airport hangers. So yeah. These are 747 size hangers. There are sparks flying. There are people welding. Uh, there's explosions going off. They're filming machete on campus. There's people with machine guns and covered in blood and there's helicopters and there's Whoa. military trucks and there's cranes <laughs> building this thing and they're building at the same time they're building a set for a, a predator movie yeah uh, the 2010 version uh, it was directed by nimrod antal a guy who did um uh, what was he did this beautiful movie called control it was yeah. shot in the budapest subway system yeah awesome love story so anyway, I go into this little room. It's filled with bullshit. Like there's like there's swastikas. There's like robots. There's bins full of parts and wires everywhere. Um, you know, and this is all stuff from like Inglorious Bastards and stuff that had kind of yeah. All these props move around through different yeah, production yeah, houses. Yeah. And these two dudes come in, and uh, this guy Kit Casati, who is very near and dear to my heart, and he's an amazing jeweler and blacksmith here in town. He was my first foreman in in film. And he's got his, his buddy Thomas, who's a very talented sculptor. And they sit down and they're like, so why are you here? I was like, um, <laughs> I was like, I met a guy in a bar and he said something about making art. And they're like, oh, did you bring a resume? I'm like, I don't have a resume. And they're like, did you bring a portfolio? I was like, I don't have a portfolio. They're like, um, well, where'd you go to school? I was like, I didn't go to school. Oh, jeez. Like, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm blowing it. I'm blowing it. And they're like, can you weld? I'm like, no. And they're like, uh, do you ever do fiberglass? I'm like, nope. I'm like, you machinist? And no. They're like, are you a jeweler? I was like, no. Like, uh, like, why are you here again? Yeah. Uh, I was like, I, I met this guy, Jeff, in a bar, and he talked about making art. He's like, do you, he's like, do you have anything that you can show us? And I had a show card that I had uh, from my first art show. It was at Cafe Mundi. And I had this little card. You know, I had them professionally printed, UV coating, double side, multicolor. And I just handed him the card. And he's like, okay, you're hired. I'm like, wow. Okay. And I mean, this is how I remember it going down. But yeah, anyway, yeah. he's like, uh, he's like, go back and see Marcy and you're going to fill out some paperwork and blah, 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 blah. So three hours of paperwork later in this little office, I walk back out there and there's just people making cool shit everywhere. My mind is blown. You know, state of the art equipment all over the place. Material as far as the eye can see. And uh, I'm like, so, you know, what's my first job? Like, you're a new fiberglass guy. And I'm like, awesome. Like, not knowing what fiberglass is all about. It's yeah. it's terrible. And that was it. Um, started, I was like, when do I start? Like, right now. Wow. And uh, I think a heat wave hit. It was like 112, 115 for like two weeks in July at mm -hmm. the time. And yeah, I was covered in fiberglass with a crew of strange, hilarious people. 
just making giant dead alien bodies and spaceship parts and wow and it just went on and on and uh immediately after that movie i got hired to true grit uh as a carpenter yeah you know for the cullen brothers and i'm not a professional carpenter but sure i'll go buy the tools go out there every day drive out to granger and we rebuilt the town and did insanely dangerous sketchy things you know in I was immersed in film work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my my wife at the time was so excited because she had done film work. She had kept asking me to, like, she's like, you should do film work. I was like, I don't know anybody. So, all of a sudden, now I'm in it. And, you know, I'm working six days a week. I'm working 12-hour days, sometimes 16-hour days. I went from, you know, a Jerry's Artorama salary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it escalated quickly. Um, and it was great. I was I was engaged. I was inspired. I was excited. I was making things. I was surrounded by art my first art show at moondy sold out now i want to ask you about that actually yeah. i just want to back up like what was that about tell me about that because i mean we haven't we've talked about kind of your life progression sure. but i'm interested in knowing like did have you always thought you were an artist i mean when i you, never thought i was an artist so what's the art how did you even get inspired to do an art show at cafe moondy i needed like, money what was that all about i needed money you know, um, and what did you make? What did what was? Gosh, I don't remember. Um, some mechanical drawings. I think the first drawing, the main drawing from that show, the one I took the imagery for the card for, was a drawing of a sandblast cabinet that I saw in a trade magazine while I was working at the glass studio because I was doing glass carving too. I was getting taught how to do all that, and I wanted my own sandblast tank. I started dreaming about tools and fabrication at home. Yeah. And it just looked so much like a face. So I drew this thing and it had this face and then it had this small engine that came out of the top of it. And then there was this other face with these giant vacuum horns. And then there was this mechanical squirrel at the bottom or whatever. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. But it was colorful and it was beautiful and it was micron. And I was, I was slowly over the years honing. Art was always the background. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask okay, you. Like, art was the yeah. background because we started having kids and I was into it. Like, you know. We're doing Montessori, you know, now we have two vehicles, now we have a garden, now we, you know, we've had to move a bunch of times, now we have this big beautiful house in the Cherrywood neighborhood that we're renting, and I've got a shop in the back, and it's little, but it's great, and I'm working, and I'm doing all this stuff. There was never really that much time for art. Um, yeah. As, as, as I remember it, you know, because I was in, you know, being a dad is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could spend all day just watching that child sleep. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's enough. Um, but yeah, I needed ways to make more money. I was taking commercial drafting gigs. Um, I ended up doing one for the rehab I ended up going to. I didn't realize till I got into the building when I went into rehab that I had designed that building artistically wow. 10 years earlier as a commission for a capital campaign they were running. I was like, I drew this. Because I, wow. I went to the site and I measured the trees and the roads and I did all these sites. Like, but I was just taking any gig I could to get another $1,000 ahead, mm-hmm. no matter what it took. Even if I had to call out of work at Jerry's for a week, which they let me do. They were so generous. They would mm. let me take vacation time to pursue side gigs, drawing. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of it was commercial drafting, very dry stuff with some artistic embellishment. But yeah, over the years I whittled away and I didn't have a cohesive show. I don't think any show I've ever had is cohesive. Um, but I had some solid pieces and I had the knowledge and the access to the frame shop to frame these. I could afford to do it and I was working small. So, you know, a 300 piece of Italian molding, one leg that came in damaged, I could cut that up into a beautiful little frame and then mark that up. 
you know yeah. so and first, someone had obviously given you some feedback that you even thought like oh maybe someone would like to hang this on their wall i guess i've always gotten feedback um because i always drew in public you know mm-hmm. i was drawing at moondy all the time yeah and then when it switched to yellow jacket i was drawing there and i all my shows have been at moondy and yellow jacket and i've sold every single piece you know everything yeah. i've ever hung at, at that location has sold yeah, yeah um i think i've had like maybe four or five shows there and that's pretty much the extent. I had one show at Common House with a buddy of mine, another insanely talented person, uh, Michael W. Hall. He's a mm-hmm. big fan of his work. Yeah, yeah. But everything else was shown at Yellow Jacket or Cafe Mundi. And there were always solo shows. I, I drew the art. I built the frames. I, you know, designed the cards. I had them printed. You know, my wife at the time and I, we provided the food. Like she was cooking was her art. Yeah. Um, you know, even the music, like the playlist was selected by me, like I was in control. Yeah. And man, those shows were horribly nerve wracking. I mean, mm. mobbed. And I was terrified and uncomfortable, but I don't know how to talk about art. I don't. Yeah. I'm not good at taking compliments. And I would sneak up and I would go up on the roof and just look down and listen to people talk about my art. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Good and bad. You know, over the years, I've definitely been accused of printing stuff out from like printing out computer art and trying to sell it as hand-drawn, which is always the greatest compliment. You know, I mean, it warms my heart yeah. when people accuse me of that. Yeah. It's uh, a, <laughs> and that makes them furious. I'm like, wow, thank you. Like, no, I'm telling you, you're lying. And I, right. I'm like, no, I get what you're saying. And I was like, what's your name? Like, it's so good to meet you. Um, so you're, you have this art show, but then you get into the movie business, and then you probably don't have a lot of time to make art, right? Well, all right. So this is, this is where some problems can arise for oh, me. okay. I'm going to do them both. Okay. So Oh, yes. I, yeah, of, of so course. So now... Now I start going in, you know, movies. We start at 7 or 7.30. Now I'm going in at 5 a.m. And just drawing, sitting at my workbench, just drawing. And, like, looking at all the cool little switches. And I'm just drawing things that are around me. Yeah, yeah. The majority of my art is things. Right. Usually something I found in the road. So I'm, like, seeing all these cool tools. And I'm thinking about all these things I could build. And I'm just drawing, drawing, drawing. And, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes people are like, hey, I love that. Like, people have literally stopped me in the middle of a drawing in public and, like, how much? And I'm like, uh, it's not done. They're like, how much? I'm like, I don't know, seven $700. Here you go. I'm like, okay, done. Um, but I started drawing a lot, taking more time, you know, and like I said, somewhat neglecting my, my family. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, you're working 12-hour days, then you're going in early yeah. to draw, then you're, like yeah. you were saying earlier, your personal relationships start to suffer. Yeah, right? you know, so doing a lot of that. Um, and, you know, I, I think I did, see, we did Predators, True Grit, and there was 18 months where there was no movie work. Hmm. So I got a lot of drawing done. I still went to the movie studio five days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. Nobody was there, and I just practiced. They, wow. let, they let me, you know, I called my, my guy. He's like, yeah, you can be there, you know, but if you make any money on side gigs, you know, I get a percentage. I'm like, oh, cool. So yeah. I just treated it like a job. I was on unemployment. So money's coming in Yeah, and it was inspiring me to draw more. So like sometimes I would just go to the movie studio in the fab shop and just draw all day. Yeah. But through all this, um, drinking was increasing, mm. you know, I was no, no more casual drinking for me. It was maintenance drinking, mm. you know? Not not over the top, you know. I still had one night a week where I'd go out with my friends and and you know my wife at the time. When I don't like saying ex-wife because it's just an ugly word. But, yeah, yeah. Um, 
she had her night. I don't think it was Thursdays. Mine was Monday night. You know, free pool, love joys, and party. And then as I kept taking on more and more responsibility, I still needed all that time for art. I still needed time for the kids. Now we got two. I still needed time for film work. You know, I need all this time. And, uh, you know, he can't fabricate more time. Mm-hmm. Um, so here or there, a little bit of, a little bit of cocaine. Yeah. You know, just a little, little touch, you know, yeah. a little bit, a little dabble, do you? And then, uh, yeah, you know, slowly over months, it started increasing a little bit more. Still not a problem, you know, mm-hmm. but I could see how, I could see how some people could have a problem, but I got this under control. Yeah. You know? And then, uh, yeah, you know, as life does, it gets complex, and, you know, I'm still taking all this time. For, for Trying to my, do everything. I'm doing everything, you know. Kids are in school. We got all the cookware. We got a beautiful library. We're eating organic everything. Like, I love doing the, the wow. $200 food shop every week at Central Market. Like, we are... So, from lit- the outside, it's like, oh, this guy has a perfect life. Oh, man, we got two dogs. We got the cat. We got the beautiful kid. We got all of it. You know, big old truck, all that stuff. Um, but it's not sustainable. Mm. Um, you know, I'm still taking small fab gigs, little fixtures and items and furniture and glasswork and stuff like that. And I started to lose control mm. over all of it, you know, started falling through on deadlines. You know, there's still people I owe work to from years ago, mm. um, that I fully intend on, on writing as I go through my amends process. But, uh, the drinking and the cocaine became yeah. problematic. And what, what was the drinking about? Like, usually when I think about people drinking too much, and I don't have any experience with it personally, but it's like, I just always imagine it's about a, like a numbing out or an escaping you know, or something. At the time, I don't think it was. I think I just enjoyed it. And it kind of went along. There's a lifestyle that goes with fabrication. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not saying every fabricator, but there is there is the fabricator that like, let's drink some beers and make some shit. Yeah. And Texas, you know, I'm, now, yeah. I'm, 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 I've been here long enough. I'm fully in love with Texas. Like we do what we want. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm driving a big old truck with fucking Longhorns on the roof. Yeah. And <laughs> crashing into shit for fun. I'm mudding. I'm welding. I'm using my fists as hammers, and then at night I'm using them as surgical instruments. Like, and it was working. Like I was being able to be this scientist with ink and paper. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, sterile and cotton gloves and everything pristine and mm. like. And then during the day, I'm like slinging fake blood and guts at monsters in the warehouse. Like literally, that's my wow. job, making, you know, rockets and um, building crazy animatronic things. And it's like, it's all exploding and it just wasn't sustainable. Um, wow. And what I didn't see is that my marriage uh, was eroding rapidly. Mm. I caught glimpses of it. And, you know, it's not it's not that my wife at the time didn't point these things out to me. Yeah. But I mean, what was the alternative, you know? You know, the argument was I needed to be spending more time and, you know, she needed time for herself and, you know, I need more time with the family. And I'm like, how do I do what? Quit the job? You know, I'm a fatalist. So I'm like, oh, you want me to quit my job? Like, what are we going to do for money? You know, and you just couldn't be you know, an I'm asshole. just thinking like you can't take your foot off the gas pedal, no, right? No, I mean, it's just like, no, yeah, no, um, I can't. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with control. A lot of it had to do mm. with ego. It's there's something great about being known for making amazing stuff everywhere yeah. you go. Yeah. In the course of a month, like you know, in different shops and production companies, and then your personal art, and like you know, even um, though you don't want the per- you don't want the attention though. No, you I don't just want, want the, the compliments. Work. I just want the work. Okay. I want it to never stop. I just want more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say that was my biggest addiction. But slowly, you know, 
over the course of, of years, uh, it started to become apparent that I was losing control. And then, you know, when, when, when it was put to me that, uh, that we were getting separated, um, mm. I did not handle it well. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't, you know, I moved to the East side. I lived in hotel Vegas for a while. Worst place I ever lived. Love Charles and the people that run it, not saying anything about the establishment, but man, it was, it was a drug den. Yeah. You know, I was living yeah. in, in, in what used to be an old whorehouse above a loud metal bar or whatever. And I'm back on the East side and I am now a single guy. Um, yeah. and you know, I'm making good money. Um, and I am, I lost it. Yeah. I went on a bender and that bender lasted, uh, about 10 years. And Damn. I mean, and it only got more intense as I went, only got more intense. Wow. You know, and, and when I say more intense, you know, the first year or so, there was a lot of, you know, there were some fights, there was some back alley bullshit, and, you know, all that. And there was the excitement, you know, I'm, I'm ripping through downtown on that same 20 inch with no brakes, like no brakes. I took the seat off so I could just pedal. I wasn't able to sit down and I'm just pumping from bar to bar, playing pool and making out and having a great time. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, it turned to art. But the drug and drinking never slowed down. Um, and, you know, it seemed the more I turned inward, the more I needed it. And maybe it was to, you know, I wonder all the time why that was. I used to think it was to calm me down enough so that I could produce some type of drawing that I hadn't yet visualized. Yeah. Or that it made my senses more keen or that, you know, the weed inspired me more and helped me loosen up and forget about my problems. No. Um, anybody who's ever sat in front of one of my drawings and had the time to read any of the notes, especially from the past, it's pretty dark shit and it's pretty fucking honest. Uh, mm-hmm. I try to keep names out of it because, you know, yeah. it can affect people. Um, but yeah, uh, I was still... Still, though, I was high-functioning, and that's that's the trouble mm. with being high-functioning in anything, you know, whether it's depression or addiction. It's like, okay, I'll just keep doing more and more drugs and drinking more and more, and I'll just keep working harder and harder and harder. Um, it's like that old commercial from the 80s about cocaine, you know, with PSA, like, I do more coke so I can work harder, so I can make more money, so I can do more coke. And, you know, and it wasn't just the cocaine, it was the alcohol, I think, was the major, mm. the major one. Especially because it's socially acceptable. Yeah. I mean, cocaine is in certain circles, certain seasons, certain years, comes and goes, whatever. Um, But booze, I mean, in Jersey, they don't sell booze at every single restaurant. They don't sell booze at at the gas station, you know, or beer or whatever. And it just became, it was just my daily. Like, all the time. I I drank in my sleep, literally, a six-pack every night. Just I wake up, I chug one or two, and just go back to bed. And the whole time, I'm I'm working in film, I'm working in fabrication, I'm flying around the country, I'm you know, I'm doing major things, yeah, uh, things I've always wanted to do, and working with some of the most talented people, artists and fabricators, artists and craftsmen, whatever you want to call them. And then I got fired hmm. from a job, wow, a really good job, and I'd never been fired in my life. Not once. I've always quit to move on to something else. Yeah. And while I believe at the time, I mean, they definitely had valid reasons. I was very stubborn, very stubborn. Um, you know, they said they couldn't afford me anymore. And I believe it was personal reasons, the reasons I got fired. At least that's what I tell myself to this day. And that was hard. I went because I didn't, A, I'd never been fired. Um, and immediately 
I just lost access to one of the coolest shops with the most resources, and I, I no longer get to see all the people I have come up with in fabrication because we all kind of were incestuous between this one company and the film industry. Yeah. So I had access to all that and all those people and all those relationships, and it was cut off overnight. Wow. And it hasn't been, honestly, it hasn't been until the past year that I've reconnected with the majority of those people because I'm now somebody that maybe people would want to reconnect with. I yeah. couldn't see how bad it had gotten. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't over yet. You know, I, I did a lot of odd jobs. I was doing fabrication for different guys in different shops and I was just moonlighting, jumping between different shops. And I was, I was desirable for my skills. Everybody knew I was a little bit of trouble. They knew I drank on lunches. They knew I probably came in smelling the booze. I just didn't care anymore. As long as I was producing and no one got hurt, and that was the case. Yeah. I could always produce and no one ever got hurt. I just thought that was enough. Yeah. You know, making yeah. rad shit. And uh, I ended up falling in with uh, Austin Metal Authority. Uh, it's a blacksmith shop mm -hmm. uh, over uh, Cedar Ave and, and 14th Street. And it was a dream come true. I am now in a shop. Like when I got hired to work there, I am now in a shop with my fucking heroes of fabrication. Mm. And they're looking to me to be a part of something. Not just yeah. not just execute plans, but giving me creative freedom. And eventually I started managing the shop there and making organizational changes. I'm pretty good at conserving space and, and getting a flow in the shop and Big safety. Big picture, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was there about two years. We did rad stuff, you know, party lifestyle. It was great, but I was always going harder partying the most and then one day i got fired from there damn damn that hurt wow um i i didn't see it coming you know the other job sure it was only a matter of time until they fired me i was a stubborn maniac mm -hmm. but this job that 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 hurt yeah. um and i was devastated and unemployed <laughs> why did they fire you I uh, I guess I had been slipping, you know, um, definitely had been slipping, you know, drinking all the time, whatever, still producing, but not as efficiently. Um, and then I, uh, I remember I went to Yellow Jacket one night and I'm, there was this weird dude there. He was insane, dude, rambling, violent, crazy eyes. And I think I got drugged that night. In fact, I was so sure I actually called the FBI three times that week because of the stuff this guy was saying. Anyway, long story short... The night I ran into that guy around 11 o'clock at Yellow Jacket, he was saying some wild shit. I actually called the police, and I told him I'd meet him around the corner. To There's this dude talking about, you know, painting the town red with women's blood, and he wants me to modify assault rifles. Jeez. And I'm thinking, this is the, that thing they say when you hear something, you say something. Yeah, right. Even though I'm, I've been smoking weed and I've been drinking, I'm like, I need, I, I'm going to do this. Yeah. So, you know, I talked to... The staff at Yellow Jacket, and they're like, just don't have the cops come here. So I met him over at like Royal Blue Grocery. And I remember walking up, and they were waiting for me, and I'm walking up, and all of a sudden I started feeling, you know, something's wrong. And I only had a shot and a beer, right? And I started talking to them, and I started slurring, and they both looked at me, and they're like, yeah, go back to the bar or whatever. And, and so I walked back to Yellow Jacket, and I don't remember it. And they said, I opened the door, and I walked in, and I fell flat on my face, and I woke up the next morning in a strange house which had never happened to me. Wow. And it was like, uh, it was like 9 or 10 a.m. And we had a major, major install at 7 a.m. Monday, that Monday morning. Yeah. And uh, I remember I got back to the truck, which was my boss's truck I'd been borrowing. 
And uh, I called him like, hey, I'm on my way in or I texted or whatever. And I got to the shop and, you know, all the tools that I had set aside, everything was gone and packed out. The crew was nowhere to be seen. I wasn't sure anybody was there. And and, and my boss my, came in at the time, called me, and he's like, sit, man. I'm like, what? You know, I told him, I was like, I got drugged last night and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in my mind, it was a valid excuse, but apparently I'd been slipping for a while. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And uh, I was devastated. So, like a true addict and alcoholic, I just devoted my time to drinking and drugging, mostly yeah. drinking. It, yeah. At that point, it was just booze, and uh, I turned it up mm. for about six or seven months until I just realized that I was, again, a, a recurring theme. I was going to die at my own hands, mm. and this time I was sure. I was going to be homeless. I didn't have any money. I was unemployable. I was unreliable was the word that my buddy used, and that was the hardest thing anybody's ever said to me. Yeah. Because I'm the guy. I'm the guy that can do it all. I'm like, no, no, it's me. I can do it. I'm like, no, no, I can't. I'm not doing it. I thought I wouldn't do it, but... And that was it. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I went to a bar... I was still drunk from the night before. I went to the bar. I hammered. I was at the point when I would walk into a bar, it was two doubles of bourbon and a beer. And, you know, the first two doubles go down. It's like, give me another one, you know. And then I go sit down and start drawing, you know, headphones. And uh, that was my plan. And I uh, sat down, had a couple more doubles and a couple of Guinness. And all of a sudden I realized, I was like, I'm going to die this weekend. Like, wow. I'm going to die. Um not that I'm going to kill myself, not that I'm going to harm myself, but I'm going to end up homeless. I know what I'm going to do when I get home to this new place I moved into with a buddy of mine, and I didn't have rent, and I was too ashamed to ask for help. Even though I'd been borrowing money from people for about six months for all these made-up reasons. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, I texted my sister and said, I need help. And three days later, I ended up in rehab. I got a grant from the city due to the hard work of the people at this rehab at Austin Recovery. And uh, the city paid $45,000 for me to stay in rehab for 45 days. Um, and uh, I bought into it immediately. I trusted them. I learned the science behind addiction. I, I made a connection. I, I developed a spirituality that I, I know I've been craving my entire life. And I drew my ass off while in rehab mm. and realized I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to draw anymore sober. Yeah. Because I was so sure it was such a part of me, the, the drugs and the drinking, that I would be useless without it. And the exact opposite was true. I was immediately hitting details. You had been hindering yourself, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this whole time. This whole time. I thought it was like, you know, spinach to Popeye. Like, I thought it was going to help. Yeah. No. No. The stuff I have been creating since I got sober is insane. Yeah. It's insane. And I don't labor over it anymore. I don't, I rarely throw anything away anymore. I rarely have a piece that I'm like, that's not worthy of seeing the light of day. No, quite the opposite. Since I've gotten sober, um, I've gone from tiny to bigger to bigger to larger pieces. I'm getting set to work on large. Um, I've taught myself how to paint since lockdown started because I, I took a commission reluctantly. The guy was not going to take no for an answer. And I realized to myself that I needed what I was seeing in my head. I can see things in my head now and I can control them. I don't, they're not invasive anymore. Mm. Um, 
I can recall them when I need them. They don't rule my thoughts. They yeah. Don't. And I realized that if I was going to create this beautiful thing, it's obviously not done in Micron. It is not technical work, and that's what this guy wants. So we'll check in here and there over the course of a couple months, but you know, for the most part, I just went silent. Um, and I learned how to paint. And I think about a month ago, I saw, I saw a milestone. I'm like that. Um, I think I made it when I first moved into this place. And I just sent him a picture. I was like, this is what I've been working towards. This is why I've been silent. This is why you haven't seen any progress. Yeah. I taught myself to paint because he wanted Micron on white paper. And no, it's going to be paint on black. I never told him that, but that's what it's going to be. And yeah. I got to a point of proof of concept and I achieved that. And, um, and even since then, now that I'm in this new space, this clean, sterile, modern, sleek, organized workflow type container home has changed everything. I have no idea what's going to come out of me now. Mm. Um, like you said, you're out of control before we started I have no recording. idea what I'm doing. I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. I never do. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't be more honest. Hey, it's Scott. So if you've made it this far, then you probably want to hear the rest of the story. So either stay tuned next week to part two, or if you're hearing this after it's been published, then you can go right over to episode 98 and hear about Brian's life now and about his art practice and uh, get to the end. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Brian for his vulnerability and sharing all the details of his life. It's been so cool to share that with you, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye.